Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Holly Mandel, an extraordinary improv specialist, speaker, educator, writer, and ultimately teacher. In this episode, Holly and I discuss how improv changed her life. Growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, we discuss her journey to Los Angeles and how she ended up at one of the world's leading improv training theaters and school called The Groundlings. And after becoming a groundling and dedicating six wonderful years there, we discuss her time in New York, where she opened up her own improv school called Improvolution, which she founded in 2002. And while that has celebrated its 18th year anniversary this past January, Holly also devotes her time to Emergence, spelled with an I, that is a training program she founded back in 2011 that uses the technology of improvisation training to corporate clients like Netflix and PBS and Comedy Central and dozens and dozens more. It's remarkable how many that she teaches. And for those of you that know me, you know that I'm mildly obsessed with sketch comedy and stand-up. And admittedly, I didn't know how different that truly was from improv. And so Holly helps unpack the mantra of improv, the two words, yes and. Now, I'm a big fan of improv, but I didn't fully understand how powerful these two words were until this interview with Holly. Uh, This conversation is packed with sociology and psychology. I mean, it really helped me understand that improv is almost a way of life. It's the idea to listen and accept, to accept what's happening, to accept things that aren't in your control, to accept someone else's approach to things, to accept and move on. Yes And is an incredible teacher in so many ways. And Holly inspires people. She inspires people to let go, to trust, to listen, and to learn, and ultimately grow. I have no doubt you'll enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Holly Mandel. Please enjoy. Hello, Holly. Welcome to the show. Hello, Yen. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you. So we're sitting here on a sunny day in Hollywood, and it's a typical L.A. day from everything I've seen. (laughs) But I know you're not from L.A. No. So I know my listeners love to hear about the backgrounds of our guests. Can you share with our listeners where you grew up? I am from St. Louis, Missouri, also St. Louis, also pronounced Missouri. And we are literally smack dab in the middle of the country. And I grew up in a pretty typical sort of middle class, upper middle class suburb of St. Louis. 
and it was pretty idyllic as far as little town parades and all that jazz. I have a brother who is five years younger than me, Greg Mandel, and we had golden retrievers and parakeets and gerbils and one cockatoo that flew away. It was heartbreaking. (laughs) And I think that's all for pets. Yeah. It was really nice to grow up there. My dad was in advertising and he would fly to LA and New York quite a bit. And so while I was growing up, I felt like the coasts were very doable for me as far as a place to live. So when it came time to leave, I applied to colleges on both coasts just because it felt possible and also much more exciting to St. Louis. No offense to people listening in St. Louis. <laughs> and where did you decide to go to college? I went to UCLA. Bruins. Go Bruins. Yes. And so what was that like for you? Did you know what you wanted to major in? Did you know it was comedy related? No, actually, comedy sort of felt like this thing that was very easy to do around friends, but I didn't think of it as a career. I really mu- very much thought I was going to get into film and be a film director. And I got into the theater program as well. And I guess the polite way to say it is it was so m- not what I thought it would be. It wasn't very artistic for me. It had a feeling of, I don't know, trying to outprove each other, if that's the right term. And it just wasn't what I thought. So I sort of stumbled into sociology classes and psychology classes, and it completely blew my mind. I'd never even really understood what sociology was. It's something, I guess, I don't know if they've changed it. We didn't study it when we were going through high school. So it's like, oh, there's reasons why people are the way they are. And I just, oh my God, I couldn't get enough of it. So I double majored. And I really think it's connected to improv. But comedy didn't really come into play. It was more of a hobby. I saw a Groundlings show, which is a, a very well-known improv and sketch comedy theater in Los Angeles. It's been around just as long as Second City. And they're the two oldest, I think, in the country. And probably that would make it the world because improv kind of came from America. So that's kind of cool. But I saw a show when I was in sixth grade. My dad took me to one and I fell out of my chair, apparently laughing so hard. And I always remembered it as adults playing, which I never saw at least in St. Louis. And so it was always this sort of fun option out to the side. And then all of a sudden, I could take a class there while I was pursuing my film career as a development person. I noticed that even though the development direction seemed like it was a lot of job security and healthcare and a nice car and a nice apartment and sort of a really clear cut career path, the only thing that really made me happy was doing improv. Amazing. So what was your first job out of college? I worked at Walt Disney Studios. I was an assistant to a person that eventually I wanted to do their job, which was uh, feature development. So they would take scripts and work with the writers and change them. And the goal was to make them better. And yeah, that was really fun to be on a studio right out of college. How long were you doing that for? I did it for about two and a half, maybe three years. Then I worked for a smaller production company on the lot. And then I became a personal assistant to a celebrity, (laughs) which was fascinating. You learn a lot by seeing underneath the hood of a car, so to speak, and how things really work. Isn't that an L.A. rite of passage, I feel? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I have the badges to prove all of it, yes. And so after you worked in a smaller production and then also served as an assistant, what was the next step for you? Well, meanwhile, while I was doing all of that real stuff, I was taking classes at the Groundlings and starting to realize that actually I was built for improv, which is a funny thing to learn in a way because, well, first of all, improv had never really left, I think, the coasts in Chicago. It wasn't in St. Louis when I was growing up. So sort of to discover that I was really kind of made for something felt so wonderful. And it almost made it feel 
not valuable because I didn't have to work very hard at it. I just loved it so much. It brought me so much joy. And then as I sort of moved up the program while I was pursuing all these other jobs, I felt like, oh, wait, this is a really legitimate path. And I could become a performing member of this company and do this as much as I wanted. And so that's kind of where the rubber hit the road. And I moved to San Francisco for a year in between the last two levels because I thought, let's just see what happens if I try to be a normal person. Because I think it was the first time I was like, oh, if you want this, you have to really work for it. And I hadn't experienced that in improv to the theme of your podcast. It's a little bit like you have to give everything to go for something, but you might not get it. And it's a very sort of almost painful, beautifully painful experience. It's scary, too. It's completely scary. So I thought, I'm going to not do this right now. And I'm (laughs) going to go to San Francisco and see if I can be normal. And that didn't last very long. And so I came back and took the final level and moved through. And uh, yeah, that's how I kind of chose that path. For those that aren't familiar, I lump in improv with comedy. Can you define improv? That's a great question. Improv is more of a theatrical performance. It gets lumped in with stand-up, and it couldn't be more different. Improv is spontaneous theater. And what you do as an improviser is you really learn to stop doing things. So when people say, what do you do in an improv class? You're just practicing to do what? You have to unlearn so much. You have to learn how to trust your instincts. You have to learn just to go with what's happening instead of judge it or try to manage it or control it to be where you're going to. So there's sort of a freedom that you have to discover within yourself and trust more than what you want to have happen or in your mind. And it's kind of like constant free falling in front of an audience. So you do scenes or games in shows, and they can be all types of scenes. They can be two-hour shows that are just one continuous scene. Those are my favorite. Or you can do a bunch of fun games like uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway, which is very improv So that's a specific vein of comedy, I would say. What drew you to improv? I think seeing the show in sixth grade really blew my mind. John Lovitz was in that show, and Lisa Kudrow was in that show, and Kathy Griffin was in that show, I think. And I just felt like I saw something that must have resonated with something in me of like, I didn't know this was an option, and it makes me so joyous to see people do it. I think now I know that that means something. And when people say to me, and they come to an improv show, and they're like, oh my God, I love that so much, but I could never do it. I say, no, because you loved it, you could do it. Mm-hmm. You know. So when you return from San Francisco yeah. and finish the last course or level at Groundlings, then what happened? Then I became a Groundling. I went, well, I was in the program for a year and a half, which is sort of the farm team. So every six months they say, we'd like to see more, or we've seen enough, thank you, good luck with your life. Or, hey, congratulations, you're a Groundling now for life. How, how many Groundlings are there? There are 30 at a time. 30 at a time. So they're quite, it's kind of standard, I think, that number. But it's been that way, I think, more or less from the beginning. And when you become a groundling, it's a pretty big deal in the comedy and sketch world as far as attainment level. Sort of feels like you've been given some sort of permission to say, like, I know how to do this really well, sketch comedy and improv. (laughs) But the best part is you get to perform as often as you want. So for six years when I became a groundling, I think I basically lived in the theater. I don't know if I took one show off. There's about four shows a year. And I just, every Friday and Saturday night, I was there on stage doing the most fun, joyous things. And the best part about improv for me when you're performing, which really I think speaks to why it's getting more popular, which is why some of the career paths I've chosen since involve improv, is because it takes something that feels stagnant, like a piece of copy, script, anything, and it says, this is the starting point. 
but you can play with it and you can make it your own. And improv is very interactive with the audience. Sometimes quite literally, you get all suggestions from the audience, but really you're sort of having this conversation with the audience and what you're feeling from them, you incorporate into your work. So it's it's a very alive thing and it's very non-separate from whoever is watching, which makes it really nice. There isn't this fourth wall where you have to be quiet and watch me do my great monologue. Do you think there are skills that make you good at improv? You know, I've been asked that a lot. And I think at a core level, no. I think it's a human skill. It's when we're at our best. I think it's the best part of us. It's the part that loves to play with others, that wants to embrace what others have to say, that isn't scared of the unknown, that doesn't have to win or be the best. So I think we inherently are all great improvisers. I think there are certain personality types that take to it really quickly. And I think sometimes those surprise people. You know, I've been a teacher for 16 years now, and I can kind of tell the people who think they're going to be great at improv and the people who are pretty sure they're going to be terrible. And the ones who think they're going to be terrible are often fantastic at it. It's kind of a funny thing. So how do you teach someone then to be good at improv? Yeah, it's a great question. There are rules that you start with. The Groundlings is pretty rule heavy. So you kind of force students, you kind of take away all of the easy excuse toys where people would do sort of as a default setting. So you would suggest something and my default would be, no, I don't like that. I want it to be this way. And so a rule would be, sorry, you can't do that. But you practice really the art of saying yes and. Yes and is sort of the mantra of all improvisers. And that's why it's such a beautiful thing to share with people who don't want to perform because it's really learning how to say, you know, not only do I like that, I'm going to build on it. And even though I had a different idea, I'm going to put that on hold for a second and let's explore what you said. Or even more so, I didn't even have anything. I'm just going to hear what you have to say and I'm going to try to make that the best. So when you kind of take away all the rules and you take away all of the coaching, what you're really getting people to do is just say yes and over and over. And it sure sounds easy. And you can spend years really figuring out the nuances of how you say yes and. And it really challenges, I think, a person. Some people find it much more challenging than others to really let go to that degree. Going back to your undergraduate degree, my guess is in psychology, the natural tendency is to say but, not and. Exactly. Which is hard. I'm a, a no but person. Maybe that's the mom <laughs> and me coming out, but like, no, but lollipops tomorrow. Yes. I wrote down yes and because I find that to be hard to adjust to. It is. And you know, and it's not to say then you go everywhere in life and you say yes and, right, obviously. But there is some sort of initial, it's like I call it the improv position in yourself, where you take a position of, I'm going to be unguarded, I'm going to be non-judgmental. I'm not going to negotiate with what you said. I'm going to be so open that I'm going to be like, great, love it, love it. Let's just assume it's the right answer. Let's assume it's the best answer. And it makes life really enjoyable, FYI. I love that. It sounds so positive, too. (laughs) It is. It is. So you were at Groundlings for six years. Yes. And then what did you do after? Then I quit. And it was really interesting do people quit groundlings generally? You can. They're sticking around longer and longer because being a groundling means something a lot different now than it did when I went through. So Will Farrell and all those guys were just starting to get famous when I was there. And so leaving now is hard because in a way it is a very strong identity. For me, it was like, no, the goal was to become a groundling, have fun for a while and see where it takes you. So I remember being there and feeling like, oh, my motive to be here is changing. My motive to be here is not to continue to have fun. It is, I don't want to miss out on a casting opportunity. I don't want to miss out on 
getting called in for the next movie or whatever it is, because people left, right, and center are all, all starting to get on television or movies. So it was actually quite challenging to give up my spot, but it felt really good to do it from a really strong, empowered place instead of a, yeah, I guess it's time to go. I'm kind of feeling like a loser. I didn't want to be that person. Did you know what you wanted to do after leaving? No, no. Improvising my life. <laughs> And so where did you improvise to? I went to New York, actually. And speaking to the theme of your podcast, which I think is so fantastic, it had to do with failure, actually, in a way. So while I was going through the Groundlings, a couple of people, including one of my, uh, at the time, closest friends and almost constant writing partner, we tended to write a lot as we were coming through, she got on Saturday Night Live. And I remember feeling I knew something was happening the night that SNL was in the audience to to see a few people. It could have been any of us that got called in for an audition, but she was definitely on a short list, I think. But I remember feeling her energy that night, and she was very focused on something beyond just the show. And I was just interested in the show. I just wanted to have fun on stage. And I remember there being a different energy there. And I didn't have that. And then she got on SNL, and I remember being so conflicted. And it's it was one of the first times I really dealt with such a deep sense of jealousy. And I've since come to understand that jealousy is actually still a gift. It really just means somebody has something that's telling you you want something of that same caliber. It doesn't mean you want what they have, but I didn't know that at the time. So it was just, you know, icky emotion. It was a fascinating thing to sort of watch her career go, which was fantastic, and she was wonderful on the show, and start to learn that that feeling of failure was really having to trust that that just wasn't for me. And at the time, I thought it meant I was, you know, it was FOMO. I wasn't picked. I was chosen over. But later in life, I got to look back and I was like, oh, my personality would never have been able to handle it at the time. I wasn't built for that. I wasn't designed for that. And that energy that happened on stage showed me that, you know, she was focused and she wanted to go beyond just the groundlings. And so it was a great reminder of like, you may not see the lesson now, but you can trust that you'll get it at some point. And when I did, it felt really nice. And so what did you do with that icky feeling? Well, with that icky feeling at the time, it was pretending it wasn't there and probably acting out of it at times that probably wasn't lovely. And, you know, all those messes you make when I don't know how many people listening to the podcast have been around people who get famous really fast. I'm sure there are different versions of that in everybody's life. But fame is weird because suddenly the whole world knows the person, for instance, who used to be your roommate. And they're kind of having this magical life that you were one degree away from. So it's a growth moment to really learn how to navigate that with grace and, again, have this bigger trust that something else is meant for you and it just hasn't hit. And maybe this moment is a lesson in how do you handle being around people who are starting to get their dreams and you haven't had them happen for you yet? And how do you handle that, I think, is a huge lesson. A lot of my listeners are in asset management just because that's the business that I've been working in. So I know a lot of the listeners are my friends and family and oh, colleagues. Cool, cool. But I think similarly, money. So instead of mm -hmm. fame, so many people follow the same financial trajectory. And then all of a sudden, you get one great mentor or one great job or one great bonus. And all of a sudden, someone has one or two or three extra zeros next to their name. And it changes a lot. Yes. But it, for those who don't get it, you question, 
am I not good enough? Am I not smart enough? What can I do better? And it, it's a feeling of failure if you don't get it, but also it lights, you know, fire up your butt. It's true. To motivate you if you do want that. And it helps you question if you do, in fact, want that. All of those things, 100%. And, you know, I've seen sort of the underbelly of all of that, which I'm sure you've had mentioned on your show many times. You know, it isn't as glamorous as it looks. And that is another growth moment is to see that, is that the thing that you want or does it just look good in the magazines? Exactly. Yeah. So you're in New York. How old are you at this time? Oh, God, I don't know the math. I think it was 30. I actually had a spiritual experience in the Beverly Center, a shopping mall, which is here in LA, which is always funny because it's the most uninspiring place on the planet. But somehow I managed to have a spiritual experience there. But it really was you know, 30 is kind of an interesting time where your fun you, 20s are over and you start to realize like, oh, life has consequences and there are things that are happening that could lead to bigger things. And suddenly I'm playing in a bigger world. And so I remember being in the Beverly Center and going up an escalator and this voice popped in my head. You know how sometimes you get these lovely voices you don't know where they're from but you don't question them and it said you know this is going to be your life unless you do something different so this feeling of oh i'm waiting to be handed this perfect life as if i'm entitled to it or you know and that might have been my upbringing i'm a white midwest upper middle class woman i'm sure i had very little struggles in my life so it's like where's the dream life so it was a real wake up call to be like kind of what you said what do you want and so what did you want in that New York? That led me to New York. Yeah, so I really wanted to start over. I felt like the human that I was, the person that I was and the personality traits, I'm, there's so many tangents. The person that I became was different because of improv. Improv teaches you to trust your instincts, and you actually have to know who you are to know your instincts. And your brain has all the shoulds in it, or part of our brain does. And so most of my life, everything went through the should computer. But improv, there's no time because it's spontaneous and it's instant. And it's also the best part of you. So all of a sudden, the real true part of me was starting to get some momentum. And I think that's why this all sort of culminated in me going, I think I need to get out of here. Because everybody I knew and everything that I did was built around the old me. And I wanted this new me to have some air. And so a summer in New York turned into 13 years. And while I was there, I was swapped an apartment with a friend of mine. And while I was there, I'm a pretty big believer in signs. I'm living LA. Come on, you guys. <laughs> and I just kept getting lots of really cool signs that seemed really interesting. And I sort of felt like in the movie version of my life, it would be a nice montage of like coincidences and things that kept popping up that said, keep going this way. Now, as far as again, this failure piece of your podcast, I had no money. I wasn't close with my family at that time. And so it was a really, really scary moment. It was one of those things of like, I'm transitioning from a really well-known thing where I'm a big fish in a little pond, where I know a lot of people to I know no one. And I just moved it to the biggest city in the world. It felt like, what the hell are you doing? And it was really interesting because some part of me that maybe got strong through improv just knew that it was all going to work out, but I didn't have to know how. On paper, I looked like a huge failure because I had no job. I had no real savings and I didn't have a network of people, but I just kept saying yes to different things and it kept leading me and I started putting up signs to teach improv and within two years I had a school. It just was one of those things that I literally sort of followed this yes to creating a school called Improvolution, which is still going. I think we're on our, oh my God, 19th year. 
being in New York. My business partner, Rebecca Stewart, is running it now. But it's all built on what I learned both from the Groundlings but also other places and also very female-focused because I felt like there was a gender – I'll put issues. My hands are going in quotes right now. There was a gendered thing that was happening in comedy and performance that I was noticing that made me want to experiment with it and create a school that was very female supportive. So Improvolution is a female-focused improv and comedy It isn't on paper because we actually have tons of men and male teachers, but because I started it and I was so fascinated by it, but we have like two-thirds women that go through the program, which is the complete opposite of just about any other improv school, which is pretty awesome. Rewinding a little bit. Yes. Two years into your New York yes and adventure, (laughs) you then mentioned that you started the business. What was the genesis behind starting Improvolution? I'm a real behavior person, which means I have to do it before I understand it. And I think there are several different types. I'm sure there's tests and things out there that tell you what kind of person you are. But I get an impulse to do something and I feel like I have to follow it and see if it turns into anything. And it's really great self-knowledge to know that that's actually okay. I've got lots of friends that are list people, structure people, and they need to see it all out on paper before they move. And I thought I was supposed to be that person, so I would do that, and then I would take a nap. So the behaviorist in me just was like, well, what do I love to do? What's the thing I miss more than anything else? And of my freelance jobs and everything else that I had, the only thing I missed was teaching. Improv. So I put up signs, and within a couple of weeks, I had enough people for one class, and then there became two, and there became three. And before I knew it, I was running the thing by myself, and it was going really great. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty cool. And so you still mm-hmm. go on improvisation. Yeah. So what then brought you back to L.A.? Again, it was a feeling. If I listened to the logical part of myself too much, I probably would have never done any of this. So it wasn't a logical reason, and there wasn't like a dramatic like, I'm leaving. I tend to go through things through feeling. And New York was starting to feel harder than fun, more difficult than easy. And I sort of feel like that's such a great clue that... I don't know in your work if you still follow that as well, because I know numbers sometimes seem to me like there isn't always a, a flow and an ease to it, but maybe there is. I think it's easy in any industry to just react and do things. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're in your 40s and you're like, what just happened? <laughs> and so I actually took a break from work professionally after 17 years of working. And I have to say it was the best gift I gave to myself. Because I just took a break and I'm like, what am I doing? And in that moment of just self-reflection, it was, who am I? What do I want? And I asked questions about myself that I don't think I would have if I continued to work. Yes. And it helped me just learn more about me. That's so cool. And what I would want to read if I had time. If I woke up, what time would I wake up without an alarm clock to get to work? And it was just a wonderful experience. And I thought it was really the best gift I gave for myself. But I also know... I'm more of a list person than a creative person, so I needed a structure. For sure. But it was something that really helped me quite a bit. Was that decision originally a feeling? Like, I know it doesn't make a lot of sense to take a break. Oh, it was crazy. The hardest part is telling my immigrant mom who left a war-torn country that I'm physically well and just choose to not work 
I don't think I've ever seen the personification of disappointment more so than in my mom when that Monday comes around and she's like, oh, so you're going to be here today. It was it was tough. But honestly, I think it's it's also it's so healthy to do. Yes, it is. But it's hard to follow that gut feeling. Yes. Because most people were just like, you know, let's just that's life. You have to go through it. I really do question that now. I, I agree. Think, follow that feeling. Well, good. I think that's fantastic. And I think, you know, growth, it's such a great name to have in your podcast because what makes us grow, you know, and I think doing the same thing all the time, I don't know if that's what makes you grow. It, it, it makes you understand one dimension, but growth is like, oh, I got to branch out literally into something new. And if new feels like a pause, I mean, that's fantastic that you did that. So yeah, it was a similar thing. I was, you know, things were going great in New York, but it was a feeling. It was a feeling of, ah, I don't feel inspired here right now. It feels like I'm paying all my Amex to have the card, but the benefits aren't f- happening. And so I visited LA and I was like, oh, it's here again. <laughs> I-, I could feel it. It felt like opportunity and it felt inspired and energized. Well, sitting here in 70 degree weather, maybe that <laughs> had to do a little bit something a with smidge, it in, in the winter. Yeah. So you find yourself back in LA. What did you do? Did you think about opening up another Improvolution out West? I did. I did. And, you know, it's very funny because... Is that a pun? Yes. Nice job. Thank you. I stick them in there every <laughs> once in a while. They're like Easter eggs. I stick them in. So my newest growth spurt is not doing something just because you did it before or it's easy. So coming back here, sort of my default setting is do what you did in L- in New York. Do what you do. Build another improv school. And I started to put it together and it really started to feel like a should more than a passion. And there wasn't this feeling that I don't know what else to call it, but it's just kind of this edge of something like it's known, but it's really unknown. And it feels like a stretch. And there was none of that doing it here. And of course, this town has so many improv options now, as opposed to when I was first here. So I may have missed the boat basically on that. Like this town does not need one more improv school. It might need other things, but it it doesn't necessarily need that. But also at the same time, I just don't think it's what I'm supposed to be doing. So even though I kind of toyed with it a few times, it just wouldn't get off the ground. And luckily I've learned to read that as walk away. So instead of Improvolution, what did you do? Well, while I was still in New York, I noticed that a lot of students were asking me to come into their companies and do what I was doing for them in, in the, at their work. And we tended to attract a lot of non-comedians, which was fabulous, because it was just <laughs> average people who were like, this improv thing seems terrifying. Sign me up. And they wanted to do it for either personal growth or work-life growth. They needed to start presenting more and blah, blah, blah. So we were getting a lot of, quote, normal people that just understood the value of improv, and they weren't sweaty and desperate to become famous. And it was so lovely. And so it started me thinking like, oh, yeah, there's a real benefit to bringing improv into companies as a training tool. So I spent a couple years fine-tuning that, taking out the things that only theater nerds would want to do, and what feels safe and secure in a corporate setting, but still deliver the goods. And that's where emergence came from. And the I, it's emergence, because I think that concept is so amazing. Like, what are the conditions to create something that's greater than the sum of its parts? That's just like, wow, how does that happen? So emergence is something I love, and I feel like that happens with improv. You get a bunch of individuals you don't even have to know each other and then you can create this kind of amazing almost perfect show out of that but you can do the same thing in a company the i is for improv but i kind of buried it because improv scares 
people, <laughs> as it should. And so it's using improv, but it's really not about comedy. And it's just a lot of fun, but the results stick, which is so cool because it's experiential. So it's not me doing a PowerPoint on the benefits of listening. You actually have to get up and you go, oh, I'm a great listener. And then you get in a room like, I'm a horrible listener. And how do I get better? I love that. Yeah. So it's interesting because I work for a New York-based firm, but I live in California. And when I was in New York, I was thinking about taking an improv class. And I looked up at the upright. So UCB had a list of improv courses. Every single day and on weekends, not that I was there on weekends, every time block, morning, midday, evening, it was all booked. <laughs> and I said, when did improv get so popular? Yep. And it was because, and I called the school just because I was curious. And I looked one, two, three, five months out. And most of it was in the evening that was booked out far in advance. And the person said it was because so many people just want to apply this to their professional life, which I thought was fascinating. That is fascinating. But to your point about the presentation skills, what is it with improv that you find would help people professionally? Oh, my gosh. So many. There's something about preparing that's great. And you can get a lot of confidence from going over either your deck or the speech you want to make or when you're going to pitch to a client. You have all those facts. But something changes when you get in front of people. And people need that alive, engaged human that is present and really listening. Even if the other person isn't talking, the room is listening to you or they're not listening to you. And these skills are to trust that you can also not have to get the fact sheet perfect. You don't have to get the rehearsed deck perfect. And often we don't really respond to data. We respond to story and the person and emotion and passion. And I have seen how people speaking will sort of lose their audience because they didn't pick up on a cue of the audience telling them, we didn't understand what you just said, or actually we have a question, or we really doubt what happened. And to be able to sort of yes and what's happening in the room becomes uh, really vital. And I've noticed for myself as I've done improv over the years, I'm a really confident public speaker. And it's I never memorize more than just bullet points because I know that my ability to sort of pivot around what's happening in the room. I do things out of order all the time because I'm like, nah, this is not going to work. You know, that's taken years, but there's a real confidence in I know enough to be able to deliver. It's just how it gets delivered is going to happen in the moment. So with Emergence, I also know you're the founder of Good Girls Aren't Funny. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Yes, I love it. While I was teaching, while I was a student and teacher myself, and then when I worked at Comedy Central for many years as a freelance writer-producer, I became aware, again, as I'd mentioned earlier, about this gendered difference. And as a sort of pro-female-female, um, whether you call yourself a feminist or not, I know that's a big debatable word, but we all know what we mean when we're pro-female-female. I just couldn't believe that women in my class were still not achieving and presenting themselves as confidently as the men. And again, these are broad stroke statements, but with my research in this talk and blah, 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 I sort of saw that improv just amplified what I think all of our experiences, because improv, there's no rules, there's no map, it's instant, the should brain goes to sleep. And men are like, cool, cool, cool. And women are like, wait, what? There's no, <laughs> hold on, how do I do this right? How do I get an A? How do I, how do I make sure everyone still likes me? I don't want to upset anyone. And all of our sort of 
I call it sort of the good girl syndrome. I think other people have called it that too. It's really basically being a human golden retriever. And it's this idea that you just have to please, you have to be liked. It actually is very dangerous to stand out and be the best. You don't want to be the worst because then no one will talk to you. (laughs) But if you're the best, it gets tricky because then everyone gets catty. So you're in this kind of nice middle where you're not a threat to anybody, but everybody thinks you're so amazingly sweet. (laughs) And you will then suck at improv. So it really challenges a lot of these structures. So I made a talk just for my women students because I was like, hey, you guys, I'm finding out this stuff. Let's talk about it. And it really seemed to help them, gave them permission to sort of name this thing they thought was just them and go, oh, this is this universal albatross around our necks that maybe has a use every once in a while, but really can stop us from being who we want to be and boldly going after what we want, which is what you need to do in comedy, but what you need to do everywhere. And is that a program in on the West Coast, on the East Coast? It's wherever I am. I've been flown all over to give the talk. I gave it recently in Australia and London. And it's really one of my favorite things to do. I have a version for corporate called Good Girls Aren't CEOs. It's basically the same idea. I think what's really nice is it's not a blaming perspective because we all got here. We all made it. We all needed each other. If there's a bad guy in quotes, it's a value system. And men are also trapped by the same value system. And we're seeing that more and more. So really, it's a values based on shoulds that are outdated or just, you know, you're a woman, I'm a woman. We were handed this list of how we're supposed to be. And I never approved that list. And I didn't get to pick those adjectives. And so it's a moment for us to go, what list would I like to live by? And uh, it's really hard for us to claim that, sort of what I was saying before. And again, you have to go against what culture tells you. And sounds easy in a movie, not so much in real life sometimes. I love that so much. There's a woman I interviewed, an extraordinary woman that I interviewed, uh, Elizabeth Shaughnessy, and she started the Berkeley Chess School. And she doesn't have separate boys' classes, but she has separate girls' classes. And she said what's fascinating, she generally teaches kids as young as four, but kind of five through eight is the primary age for her, that girls play not as aggressive as boys. And she doesn't know where that came from. But the reason she has separate girls' classes is to teach them opening sequence moves that are more aggressive Mm. because she says Jess is life. You have to be more aggressive. And I thought that was really fascinating, similar to your parallel in comedy. What do you think with your psychology and sociology education, why that is? The the lack of aggression sort of out of the gate and some of the differences. Or the fact that women feel, and I think you perfectly described the need to be perfect Mm -hmm. in this structured way, why women feel that way more so than men. This will be a seven-hour podcast, by the (laughs) way. I mean, the short answer, the first thing that comes to mind to answer that is when you're not the norm, and we all know what the norm is, sort of this privileged, it's been a privileged, straight, white man It sort of changes over the time, but that's the template that we all get for a very, very long time, thousands of years, really. When you're not the norm, you're wired to pick up on what the norm wants. And so you have a very different relationship to your own ideas. You have a very different relationship to others. You have a very different relationship to your instincts and what you want. And you're pretty much, to me, I feel like there's a wiring system in me that's been snipped and that I leap to want to do something, and then it goes through the should computer that says, is this wise? Will this get me in trouble? Does this person like this? And so my reference point is often not me. My reference point is often the other. And Simone de Beauvoir coined it, you know, otherness, and in her book, The Second Sex, and it's brilliant and it holds up to this day. But to me, it's the real core of it is that we know that we're valued for things that are external. 
we're starting to change that, but it's really, really, really hard. So I think aggression is just not valued in girls. So we've learned to not do that, but we can change that if we want to. But we really have to learn how to have each other's backs. And for a woman to step out of this norm and take a risk and do something aggressive to then have a bunch of women jump on her back as well as men is so tragic to me. And that feels like the next Me Too really is to really address how women aren't supporting women. I love that. I was speaking to one comedian and I asked her about failure, especially as a comedian. And she said, it's the tightest feedback loop on the planet (laughs) because you instantly hear or don't hear failure with laughs or no laughter. For you, do you find it's similar with improv, whether it's with the audience, with the person you're responding with? How do you see failure in improv? So great. Well, there's two ways I was thinking about this beforehand. There's two ways to define failure, and I think they're both interesting. The, the first one is you learn really fast that when you interfere with what the moment wants to be, it is a failure. To me, it's kind of like a lack of trust. So in an improv show or a scene – two people that are pretending to be setting up a tent for their overnight camping thing and something goes wrong. Failure is really, I don't trust that this is all going to work out. I don't trust my partner. I don't trust myself. I'm going to get in there with my stupid brain and I'm going to try to force something to happen or I'm going to try to make sure I'm really funny. And it's instant failure because you've kind of disengaged from the rules of improv and what improv is. It's no longer an improv scene. It's It's a shit computer. Exactly. The other thing about failure in quotes that I think is fascinating is I used to think doing terrible at improv lived on one end of a line and being amazing at improv lived on the other end of a line. And over the years, I've realized actually if you bend that line and you make it a circle, horrible improv is right next door to brilliant improv. And actually the worst in quotes kind of improv is the safe choice. So fearing mistakes is actually the biggest enemy of improv because mistakes often are the same thing as gold. It's really how you interpret it. The only reason why this really strange thing isn't going to work is because people are going to judge it and not yes and it. So when weird things happen in an improv show, you get excited because you're like, cool, this is taking us off course. One of my favorite shows is Whose Line Is It Anyways? And the beauty of that spontaneity and the yes and And the failures, because so many things would be dropped or laughed at, and they just went along with it so brilliantly that those failures actually expanded to be something even better. Exactly. That you would see, but it was amazing how they, the yes and around it. And there's sort of a spiritual component to it too. Whatever people believe obviously is based on their experience and things like that. But my experience of of improv being connected to something spiritual or or something metaphysical at least is it's your interpretation that decides if it's a failure or not right and that becomes a really powerful tool because says who and it's up to us to decide well am i going to take this opportunity and it's the same thing in a scene am i going to take this moment and i'm going am i going to label it a failure and it's really only a failure if i compare it to where i think it should have gone and that's a microcosm in an improv scene but of course that's life in a big sense So I ask everybody on the show, and you'd mentioned a little bit in New York, but I'm curious if that is the answer. What has been your most memorable or impactful failure? Mm. See, I have trouble with that question because I don't label things a failure, but I get the point. So I think I've done a lot of work. And again, when you live improv and you really go all the way and become a complete nerd, which I am a five-star improv nerd, 
it's really, really hard to see things as a failure. I think I would say, I wish I had a nice juicy story for you. I mean, I do feel like the watching other people get what I thought I wanted and not being the most graceful through that and not understanding that there was something else meant for me at the other end probably was the least I'm not proud of those just feelings and I'm sure I did and said stuff that wasn't pretty either but more of it was just feeling like god you know resentful toward them which is just so awful I can't really get in there more than that no it's great yeah how do you think about growth whether it's career growth personal growth professional growth financial growth do you think about where you want to be in two five ten whatever years Yes, I've gotten much more brave about that. I think it's a courageous thing to give yourself permission to think and dream big. And I think for women, I would go in front of a jury with this, but I think for women, it's even harder. We have not been groomed to dream very big because up until very recently, we have not been really able to follow those dreams. So our dreams are like, my kitchen looks great. Uh, My kids are well-fed. I did it. So I've noticed with a lot of women that I work with, to get us to dream big is really in itself a huge achievement. I feel like daring to throw the fishing line way out there, and even if I can't be concrete, about what the specifics are. There's kind of a feeling. There's kind of a lifestyle. There are snapshots. There's a sense of a kind of a life that I want to lead. There's the impact that I want to have. How I get there, if I get too focused on how, I get really freaked out. So I think for me, growth is permission to dream big and let those little glimpses start to get momentum and not get tripped up on the how. Absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. Who or what inspires you? People who do the right thing because it's the right thing and their motive is to inspire others to do the right thing. I think now more than ever, it is really clear how important it is and actually how hard it is to go up against the norm. I think when I used to watch movies about, God, like the Holocaust or other horrible things, I was like, I would have done X, Y, and Z. And living in the world we're in right now, it's like, oh, I get why it was hard. It doesn't excuse it. But I think there are individuals throughout history and current history that make you go, wow, to stand up and say that or do that or not do that Knowing that culture is pushing you to go the other direction is just, to me, the most exciting thing. Did you have a mentor or role model, whether it's on stage, on screen, or in person that you knew? That I knew. Well, Carol Burnett was like my North Star. I feel really lucky to have along the way met people that I almost feel like I apprenticed I would find somebody at the company. You know, I freelanced did a lot in advertising and on, on honor promotions throughout the time because I, you didn't make money being an improv student. So they kind of, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, I think is something to that effect. And I sort of feel like it's kind of been a, a, a constant rollout of the next person that sort of is living the life that I'd like or there's a quality to it will sort of appear to me. I don't think there's been one that I followed. I know some people are, are that way. Or I like to borrow sort of attributes. Like there are things about Oprah. I mean, Obama, come on. There are people, there's just people that I'm just like, that's badass. And when you sort of see an example of it, I think it gets in you Mm -hmm. to emulate it. Love that. What's next for Holly Mandel? Oh, well, I'm going to finish my tea. 
And then I'm going to get in my car. And I think good girls aren't funny. I am very excited to put a lot of time and energy into it and turn it into something much bigger. I feel like there's another version that's coming because it's, you know, six or seven years old now and the world has changed. So I'm most jazzed about that. And everything that sort of comes from that work sort of trickles down into emergence. We do a lot of, you know, I do a lot of stuff with women and diversity and inclusion and things like that. So to me, that's the tip of the arrow is, is pushing into gender and this next wave. I absolutely love this conversation. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your projects? Oh, great. I finally made like a little warehouse of all of my websites because I'm a serial website maker. So everything is on hollymandel.com and you can see my different pieces there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I love this conversation. Me too, Yen. Thank you. This was great. (laughs) 